mic out here. There we go. One, two, three, four. We good? Are we good? All right. I'm going to turn it back off. We good? Am I on? All right. Excellent. Awesome. Greetings. Welcome to Wednesday night. Welcome to Daniel seven. We are um, we're going to start our, our study. Let's um let's open in prayer and then we'll jump in. Father, we bless you. We lift this night before you. We pray that uh, you help us as we go through your word together to um to search your word out. We pray that it would. Uh, be a mirror for us that um, we would look into our hearts through your word and that you would move and speak to us that which you would desire to show us and that would draw us closer to you. May we not be the same after we've looked into the mirror of your word than we were before we did. May we be moved. Father, I pray you help me to to, to speak, to share, to teach those things that are on your heart. Uh, lead me and guide me as we go through the text this evening with um to speak those things that you wish to be made known, revealed through your word. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So, greetings. We have um, videos uploaded now on YouTube. And the YouTube is, if you go to ccf.community, which is our church website, and you go forward slash YouTube, they should all be there. So, um, you doing all right? Um they should they should be um, most of them. There's still a few of the earlier Daniel ones that aren't up yet, but the case kind of putting them in backwards, like the latest one and the one before and the one before. Yeah, the last two are up there. So um, yeah, so you can go straight to ccf.community forward slash YouTube. The other thing is is I am sending the notes out now. So if y'all um, want a copy of the slides, and uh, I'm usually sending like I sent them out earlier tonight. Um, uh, to anybody that's that's asked for them, 
if you want them, just let me know, and I'll make sure you get put on the list. Um, hopefully, we'll be doing a, um, a subscription service. We'll, we're, we're talking about it. We're seeing if we can work it out. So you can subscribe, and then you could just download any of the notes that you want to download, and, uh, and uh, we'll, we'll work that as well. So then they should be able to match up with the videos. Watch along. All right, excellent. So we are going to do Chapter 7 of Daniel. Um, do our, you know, kind of our standard intro. Um, do our, we do our, most of the time, people do their bibliographies at the end. I do mine like right up front. So give honor to whom honor is due. Most of the, the material tonight will come from Dr. Wendy Witter and her research into the book of Daniel. And she's got lots of um, bona fides. You can see them up there on the screen. We're using the Lagos Mobile Ed a course on the book of Daniel, the overview of Daniel is what we're using as our main source. And I pull a lot also from the work of Dr. John Lennox um, when he was teaching through uh, the, the book of Daniel in, um, I believe it was Oxford, where, where I sat through his class, so a uh, seminar in Oxford. So um, anyway, I uh, highly recommend checking him out on YouTube and his teachings on Daniel as well. It's just really um, tremendous insight. You know, one thing I'll say this tonight, because getting into chapter 7, um, there is far more in chapter 7, in, in each of the chapters, than we could, that we could legitimately cover. You can spend multiple weeks covering each chapter, and we're kind of doing a little bit more overview, a little more um, survey style. Uh, we are jumping in in certain areas in the weeds, and I think with Daniel 7, I'm probably going to take at least two weeks to go through it. We'll go through tonight. I hope to get through kind of an overview of it so that we got a, a good introduction, a good, you know, um, uh, first time through. But there's a lot of details and weeds we're, we may or may not get into tonight, and I'm, I am going to get into the, some of those um, in like probably next week, and it may take us two weeks. Because this chapter, and I'll say this later, it's literally the hinge of the whole book. The whole book hinges on this chapter, and I'll explain how that works um, as we get into it. So it's um, uh, it's it's right at the middle of of joining the the two different sections or types of writing in, in the book and its message and everything. All right. So when we think of the book of Daniel, um, like Revelation, one thing to remember: it's not a secret key to what. Yeah, so to Jesus is coming back, right? It's not a secret key. So, you know, 13 points for that, Carmen. Um, and uh, it, it, the first thing we want to do is, is say, what was, the, what was the meaning for it? What was the application that Daniel had when he was writing it, that God was intending to speak through him at that moment to the Israelites? who uh, We want to go there first. And then once we've gone there and kind of explored that a bit, then we can kind of say, well, how does that apply to our lives? What's, what's the universal meaning that we can take home from that? Um, and so that's, that's kind of the, the, the MO as we're, we're studying Scripture. And it's what I would suggest as you're studying anything in Scripture. Um, you know, remember something. Now, this is something I read recently. I just thought it would be good to point out. Scripture is, so the message of the gospel is easy. You can open the Bible, you can read the gospels, and you can understand the message of the gospel. It's, it's not complicated to, or difficult to, to come to a place of saying, well, I see who Jesus is. I need to surrender my life to him. But the scriptures themselves take, um, to, to, to fully grasp the depth and the breadth of what's in them, take study. Um, they, 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 they take real effort 
to put into. And that's what we're kind of getting a taste of as we're going through the book of Daniel tonight. You know, some of that, some of that effort, some of that work, and we're standing, we're like dwarves standing on the shoulders of giants, those who've done all the hard stuff in front of us, so we get to enjoy their fruit. All right. So the theology of Daniel. Who can give me one? There's three points of theology in Daniel that we kind of go over. Who can give me one of those? Sovereignty of God. Very good. That's, let's see, we'll, so we'll do, uh, we did 13 points. That's 19 points. 19 points. You can give me another one. This one's a little harder. So this would be worth 21 points. Ooh. You can cheat now. His continuing care for his people. Very good. That's it. Uh, and, uh, so 19 points. Um, but his continuing care for his people. Yeah, they're up on the screen now. And then the last one, theology through story. That's right. We we are um, 40% of the scripture's story, and, and and God is revealing himself through these stories, what's in the details, what's not in the details. And so um, we, we've got a people who are in, they're literally in shock. They're literally in shock from being exiled out of their land. They've lost their land. They've lost their temple. They've lost their, the, um, the line of kings. Um, and, and they're asking, does God still care about us? We're under these evil Gentile rulers. And, and so Daniel is writing to address all of these issues. Um, and so if we step back and look at the whole book, the first half is, is this collection mostly of stories. There's some prophecy in there and some other types of uh, genre in there, but it's mostly these stories, right? We get Daniel and, the, and his three friends who um, um, uh, and, and dealing with the king's food. You get Nebuchadnezzar in the statue dream. You get the fiery furnace, Nebuchadnezzar in the tree dream, the handwriting on the wall, Daniel in the lion's den. These stories most of us have, have heard, you know, all, uh, all our lives coming up in Sunday school. And then the second half is that, that apocal- the, the apocalyptic, the prophetic literature that's much more harder to, harder to understand, all the symbolism. And we're going to break into that tonight. That's where we're going tonight. We're going to break into that with chapter 7, the four beasts, the ram and the goat. And you've got Daniel's prayer in the 70 weeks coming up. And then we're going to be talking a lot about these north and south kings and what's all that about. So I really, really like Dr. John Lennox's division of the book. Um, and so one of the things when we're reading Daniel, and I'll bring this up over and over, and you're reading ancient literature. Whenever you're reading ancient literature... So often the message is given to us by how they put it together. They're not so concerned. And again, we're going to see this really come out tonight. They're not so concerned with chronology. We're like all about chronology. Well, what happened first? And where did that happen? And did this slide in there? We're about telling stories chronologically. They didn't care. They're, they very loose. They will use chronology when it fits the purpose of the writing. They will leave chronology when it fits the purpose of the writing. It just wasn't in their mindset to be overly concerned with it. Um, and so, so you look at structure, and the structure, when they make those changes, helps us to understand, oh, they switched off. Why? Why did they do that? And so when you look at Daniel, you have a part A and a part B. So if we look at the first five chapters as a part A, and then 6 through 12 as a part B, we notice this correspondence. In, in part, uh, the chapter 1, Daniel's dealing with the Babylonian court. In chapter 6, he's dealing with the Medo-Persian court. In chapter 2 and 3, we've got two images. First is the dream of an image, then he creates the image. When we get to chapter 7 and 8, we get two visions of beasts. First the four beasts, then the two beasts. 
when we get to um, chapters 4 and 5, we have two kings that are disciplined. And when we get to chapters 9 through 12, we get the explanation of two writings. And so we get this correspondence. This is on purpose. He's thinking through this when he's writing this. He's purposely putting this together in, a, in a, um, these um, complex literary structures. This is genius writing. That's why I said this stuff takes, takes study for us to, to get it, to see it. And what, but the cool thing is, when you see it, it's like seeing the, the answer to a riddle, right? Oh, that's so cool. And you can't unsee it anymore. Um, and so um, I'm, I'm going to do just simple, simple, brief uh, overviews on some of these chapters we looked at. What was the main theme of chapter one? It was uh, the providential hand of God is behind all the events that happened. Right. So here they were carried into exile and they're being trained to be good Babylonians. And yet they were called to uh, um, uh, to sacrifice their purity. And it's the one thing they, they refused to sacrifice their purity before God. They were going to be good citizens. But they weren't going to sacrifice their purity before God. And God honors that. They're vindicated for it. And we learn that God has a providential hand behind all events, even when those events seem to be difficult, hard, or even tragic. Um, Then we get into chapter 2, and everything changes. All of a sudden, there's a sudden change. We switch languages. We're in the middle of a book. All of a sudden, he starts literally writing in a different language. He's no longer writing in Hebrew. He's starting to write in Aramaic. And, and, and Aramaic is what? It's the language outside of Israel. And where are they? They're in exile outside of Israel. They're living in the court of, of, um, of um, Babylonian and later Medo-Persian kings. And they're dealing with these things. And so the language switches to that. And we get a structure change at the same time. It's called a what? What's the structure called? This structure right here. Who knows what it's called? Chiastic structure. Very good. 27 points. See, I'm up in the points now as we go. 27 points. So Marco is the point bank. If you need to borrow points, just watch out. He charges interest. So (laughs) you can get, you can borrow some points from him. All right. So yeah. And so with this chiastic structure, it's where is the main thrust? Where's the main point of a chiastic structure? In the center. That's right. So that we're now at 29 points. Very good. So, um, uh, so it builds from these outer boundaries uh, uh, through through um, some some intermediate boundaries till it gets to the thesis, till it gets to the central point of the structure that 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 section is trying to tell you. It's very, very different than how we write, so it's a little foreign to us. If you don't know that, you might be looking in the wrong place to see what the main point is. And so, what's the main point we see here? We got chapter two. There's Nebuchadnezzar has a dream of four kingdoms. It's replaced by a fifth. In Daniel chapter 7, tonight, Daniel's going to have a vision. And guess what it's going to be about? Four kingdoms replaced by a fifth. They correspond. These are the bookends, the boundaries of this chiasm. And then the Daniel 3 and 6, that what, that, what were they about? They were about faithful, godly people facing death. And saying, no, I'm standing for the word of God. I'm standing faithful in my faith and trust in God, even in the face of death. And then we get, moves us to the center of it, in which what's going on? Proud Gentile kings are judged. Just when you think the world's going crazy and you're questioning, is God in control? People are being sent to, to, into lion's dens and sent to fiery furnaces. Where's God in all of this? Right there, he's saying to these Rulers, I'm the one in control. When you live in arrogance and don't bow yourself down to me, ultimately I judge you. 
And so this is what, what we're learning. This is the theme. So God's, God's in control of all the kingdoms, and then it leads us to God's in control of specific kings. Do you see how that goes? God's in, here it is in the outer boundaries. He's in control of all kingdoms. He's in control of specific kings. But the people of God are called to be faithful through it all. That's what it teaches us. Right there. Just looking at the structure. Don't even have to read the book. But you do. All right. Let's keep going. So um, this is chapter 2. What's its purpose? You've got the great image of, uh, that he saw. A great colossal man. God of heaven is the source of wisdom and power. God of heaven is the source of wisdom and power. And he shares that with us. Because we're meant to be his imagers. But he holds us accountable with what he's given us. Because we're meant to be his imagers. That's our purpose. And when we, when we walk away from that purpose, he holds us accountable for, for that doing. And he will ultimately establish his kingdom. That took us into chapter 3. And the bottom line of chapter 3 was no matter what, we will not bow down. No matter what, we will be faithful. Fiery furnace what? Fiery furnace who? My God is bigger than that. And even if he doesn't, I'm still not going to bow down. God delivers me in the moment or not in the moment. Ultimately, he delivers, and so I'm not bowing down. And so faith, then, is what? It's not something we do in here. It's something we do from here and live out here. It's courageous. It's not meant to be something we believe in a faith statement. It's uh, for our personal benefit. It's something because he alone is worthy, period. And so that takes us into chapter 4, which was the heart of the chiasm. And Nebuchadnezzar, he's judged for his pride. And, and what was the whole point of this? What did he do? He lost his mind. It is madness to deny the sovereignty of God. It is madness to deny. And until he was willing to deny, he had the mind of an animal. But when, when he acknowledged the power, the grace, the glory of God, then he ha- was returned to the mind of a man. Now, that's going to come up again tonight in tonight's uh, uh, um, reading in the, uh, what we're going to look at tonight. That whole motif is going to come up again. So it's one of the reasons we review all this because Daniel keeps bringing these things back into everything we're looking at. And so by reminding ourselves when we read through tonight, I want us to remember all these stories we've studied. They're all going to be uh, overlapped. So number chapter 5 was the evil, wicked king who refused to repent, Belshazzar. He also was judged for his pride. He disregards all... But see, what was his problem? He knew what was right and disregarded it anyway. He knew what was right, and, and in his selfish, arrogant pride, he had disdain for God. He had disdain for the madness that, um, uh, of Nebuchadnezzar, and in, and in that alone, he's demonstrating his own type of madness. His, own, his arrogance and pride is his own type of madness in which he denies God's sovereignty, and that ultimately leads to his downfall. And in his end is the end of the, is the, end of the empire. The end of Belshazzar is literally the end of Babylon. The Neo-Babylonian Empire falls uh, to the Medes and the Persians. The head of gold topples. Something lesser follows, and ultimately we can know what? Well, we've been prophesied that something that the head of gold was going to fall, and the chest of silver was coming next. So we know by seeing the fact, the fact that these are actually happening that one day the kingdom of God will uh, uh, overpower the kingdoms of men. Because we see what was prophesied happening right in front of us. And we can trust, but we're going to have to go through a lot of difficult things to get there. And this is where chapter 7 takes us. It's going to take us to the point where we're going to talk about a lot of difficult things getting there. There's going to be a lot of hard stuff, a lot of difficulties coming up. So we're jumping right into chapter 7 here. 
Um, and we're going to be introduced to a, a, a different genre, a different way of writing. Before, how you doing? Welcome, welcome. Thanks for joining. Um, this is a different way of writing. And it's super tempting if you're reading the book to kind of, uh, thanks Wayne, um, to kind of take um, uh, uh, the book and um, divide it in two and kind of say, well, this all this writing over here with all these prophecies and symbols and all that, it kind of looks like this was written in a different time and this was written over here and, and somebody just kind of pasted the two together and put Daniel's name on it. It's super tempting to do that. But don't. Don't. Why? Because what looks like is different is actually intricately woven and tied together. So uh, this chapter is literally the hinge that ties both sides of the books together. First, we got the language. This is the last chapter of Aramaic. So we're going to get a lot more prophecy, uh, apocalyptic writing and prophecy coming, but it's going to switch over to Hebrew. So we're still tied to the first half with Aramaic. Second, it's part of the chiasm. It's the outer boundary of that chiastic structure we were talking about. We're finally reaching the, the, the far boundary, the far end of that. Third, the themes. We've already seen the themes of four kingdoms uh, plus one, the kingdom of God. Four kingdoms of men plus the kingdom of God. We've already seen that, and now it's reinforced. So here, though, we've changed style. We've changed literature. We're still connected. We're still hooked to it. Um, so what, um, uh, what I would submit to you, Dr. Witter says this, and I agree with her on this. This chapter right here that we're studying, this chapter 7, is literally the central focus of the entire book. Do you remember how I said the chiastic structure, the points in the middle? See, don't think that the point of Daniel is going to be when we get to 12. Okay? This is the point of the whole book right here. I would submit to you it's the central focus of it. Like I said, it's a hinge. It's a fulcrum point that literally pivots. We have, we have, um, we have this transitional literary style, so it's pivoting with literature. We're shifting from third person to first person. Everything was in third person before. We're going to find out as we get into Daniel 1 tonight, he's going to say, I, Daniel. And we're switching, we're switching, uh, uh, in, uh, the, 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 um, the narration. Um, it's linked to chapter 2, as we already said, in the subject matter. Um, and, but it also sets us up by changing the genre of literature. It sets us up for everything else that's going to come after it. So by doing all these things to tie it to what's before, it also does some things to set us up for what's coming after it. Um, and so it pivots in perspective from the concerns of the Jews in foreign courts, because everything we were concerned with before is how to live in Babylon, right? Now, all of a sudden, we're going to be concerned, if we're Jews, with, with going back to the Holy Land and the city and the sanctuary and all that's going on there. And so this, we're going to have a perspective pivot right here at this point. We're going to have a pivot going from Babylon into Medo-Persia. We're, uh, into, um, from Babylon to Medo-Persia into Israel and even into the future. So we're pivoting Location, we're pivoting setting as we're coming through chapter 7. We're pivoting events from living out as an exile to, to events in the future, going back into the land, and, and what even happens after that. Um, and so it's literally a critical chapter for the whole book. It's, it's, the, it's the chapter that holds it all together, that takes these various strange different stories and, and, and languages and puts them in to say, no, this was all intentionally to be one thing. Remember I told you, this is genius writing. It's why it would take some time to wrestle with it, to study it, to, to figure it out. All right. So we said we're in, a, we looked at this already. Um, we're in this Aramaic chiasm. And so we're, we're on the outer boundary. 
or chapter 7, we're finishing what's the, the what's in that foreign language of Aramaic. After chapter 7, we switch back to Hebrew. Now, for us, we're reading it all in English, so we don't really notice. It kind of flows nice for us. We don't we don't feel that abrupt change. But if we're reading it in its original languages, you'd feel it. You're like, oh, you're kind of switching along. Um, and 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 so we're going to be we're going to be bounding the chiasm as we also are switching into another genre. All right, so. Um, uh, chapter 7 and 2, because they share chiastic positioning, um, they're opening and closing the chiasm, right? And uh, um, that's that, by the way, that's a, for, that's a chiastic structure right there where the, the thrust is in the middle is what we're talking, when I say chiastic structure, that's what we're talking about. It's the way they used to, one of the ways they used to write in the ancient world and where the main point was in the middle um, like chapters five and six, there would have been the main point. Um, and so, when I'm saying chiasm, and that's what I'm referring to. Those chap, those uh, six chapters were written in a in a way to to take us from a point to a conclusion, back to a point, kind of getting there and back. Um, and so, they share some themes. So whenever we're looking at, like, if we look, remember we looked at chapter five and six, I mean four and five, and saw the similarities. And then we looked at last week, chapter six and three, and we saw similarities. Well, we're going to do the same thing. We're going to look at chapters two and seven and find out they help us to interpret each other. They help us to see uh, some things that are similar. Um, now, what do they share? They share kingdoms of man and the eternal kingdom of God, right? Um, and we'll see that. I'm going to read through it. I'm giving all the explanation first, and when we read through it, it we get a little bit more understanding that rather than just reading this weird, strange language going, what in the world is he talking about? Um, it gives us a wide-angle, broad scope of history, these chapters. They're looking at history this way. You know, when we get to looking at Belshazzar or looking at Nebuchadnezzar, looking at history this way. One person, one incident. But in these chapters, we're looking at wide, you know, uh, centuries of history. Um, the, so, um, there were, but what's different now is before, um, uh, we were looking at the world in much more material way or empirical way. Now we're going to be looking at the world cosmically as we look at these strange beasts and we're going to be looking at much more symbolically. Um, it's a world of kingdoms and a, a, a view of the world of kingdoms for the life of God's people. So we'll be looking at it from the perspective of God's people. That's one of the things that's going to be a little different. All right, so how is 7 broken down? When we get to read, and we'll be get to reading in a minute, um, the first verse is an intro. It's just a short intro. And then the second chapter, verses 2 through 14, we get Daniel reporting his vision. And so he'll be reporting what he saw, his, his dream that he had. He'll be telling us about it. I, Daniel, saw. And then uh, from verses 15 to 27, it's, it's a heavenly being helping Daniel interpret this. And that interpretation is broken down into two major sections. The first section is going to be the summary of the four kingdoms. That will be verses 15 to 18. And we'll spend most of the time on the fourth kingdom. And then we'll get to an interpretation of this fourth beast. And that's going to take a lot more time, 19 to 27. Um, and we're going to see this additional element that's thrown in there that wasn't in Daniel's dream. In other words, even the interpretation gets added some stuff so some extra stuff to it. We're going to find out who are these saints that it's talking about that's in there. And then finally, we'll get to an interpreting that fourth beast. And then we'll have, um, we'll have a, the conclusion of the chapter. And that'll, that'll, um, that'll um, 
that's the breakdown. That's the outline. All right. So before we read, one more thing we're going to talk about is apocalyptic literature as a whole. What in the world is apocalyptic literature? Why are we, you know, what does that mean? What's this big fancy word? It doesn't mean bombs going off and all that, you know, like the apocalypse now or whatever. Um, it's not what it means. Um, it's a genre of, um, well, first of all, with Daniel in particular, it's actually a mixture of both prophecy and apocalyptic. Um, there's, it's, it's, a, um, it's not purely apocalyptic. So if we want to understand apocalyptic literature, it falls kind of under this broad umbrella of something we call visionary literature. Visionary literature. So what is visionary literature? So there's several, several ways of writing that are related. And there are ways in which the authors takes ideas and images that they see in their mind and, uh, and they have in their imagination when they're writing, but they don't necessarily exist in empirical reality. In other words, I saw, I saw this beast, this lion come out of the sea and it had two wings. Well, he didn't really see, there's not a, like a real lion with two wings coming out of the sea. It means it's an image. It's something in his imagination that, that has been revealed to him that he saw. And you have to dig a little deeper to find out what in the world does that mean. So, um, so it's, it's something in reality. It exists in reality, but it doesn't exist empirically in reality. You're not going to see that beast. So this is something about vision. Uh, so it's depicting events that will happen. So it's not something that's just uh, fanciful. Okay, it's not just you know somebody tripping. Um, but it's it's um it's actually things that are going to happen. But the way it's being pictured for us is not a literal depiction. Okay, it's a symbolic depiction. Um, so, uh, it, apocalyptic literature is typically highly symbolic, um, and it's more symbolic than other types of literature, right? So, I'll give you a, a for instance. When you go to um, the book of Revelation, um, which is where we get, and I'm getting ahead of myself, is where we get the term apocalyptic, is the book of Revelation. And, and uh, John is caught up in the throne room, and he turns and he sees a lamb as though it had been slain. Well, we all understand right away that was Jesus on the cross. But you don't picture Jesus on the cross as an actual lamb being slain, right? But the picture of a lamb being slain gives us the understanding of Jesus, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world. It gives us that picture. So do you all follow that? It's depicting a real event um, with, with symbolic language. And so the types of literature that fall under visionary, you have prophetic, you have apocalyptic, you have proto-apocalyptic. That's this mixture of the two. And Daniel really falls into that proto-apocalyptic, kind of this mixture. Um, now, the point of this kind of literature is, is it's trying to do one of three things. This kind of literature is trying to do one of three things. It's, it's trying to encourage people who are oppressed. It's one of the main purposes of the book of Revelation. It says in the very, you know, it's interesting because this is why I tell you most people don't understand Revelation. It tells you in the very first chapters of Revelation, it says, blessed are those who read these words and keep them. How can you keep something that's a prophecy about a key to when Jesus comes back? You can't because it's not meant for that. It's meant to encourage you while you're going through oppression. That's the whole point of it. And part of that encouragement is the hope that Jesus is coming back, that all this is temporary. That's part of the encouragement. It's not meant to try to find a secret key. It's meant to build up and encourage believers. That's number one. Number two, it's to warn oppressors. 
It's to warn oppressors. Hey, you uh, 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 Gentile rulers who are ignoring God in his sovereignty, you think you got it going on. What you got is temporary and the real thing is coming. The psalmist says, kiss the son lest he be angry with you. Psalm 2, look it up. Psalm 2. And, and so it's meant to be a warning. And finally, it's a call to faith. It's a call to faith, especially to those who are wavering between God's hope and human wisdom. And look, it's not condemning that wavering. What it's saying is, I know what you're going through is hard. I know what you're going through is difficult. I know that, that, that uh, what they are doing is wrong and what is evil. But hold on. God is not uh, um, uh, lax. God is not weak. God will have his way through this. But he is long-suffering not desiring that any should perish. And in his long suffering, evil will have its way, but God ultimately will have his. Because how many of us have gone through long stretches of evil in our own lives to see the redemption of God? Thank God he was long suffering for us. And so it's a call to faith. It's a call to faith. And so finally, Daniel is, is both trying to encourage the oppressed and call to faith. Both of these things are going on. There's a little bit of warning. I mean, a little bit that, that's happening as well. But more, it's written to the Jews. It's written to what they're going through. And so um, that's his primary audience. Um, all right. So we get the word apocalyptic. It simply means revelation or disclosure to reveal. That's what it means. So it's a Greek term. It doesn't, uh, the, the term itself, we don't see it in the literature until after Christianity actually um, uh, comes up after the time of Christianity, after the time of Christ and the, the falling of the Holy Spirit. Um, and so the last book of the Bible is called what? What's the name of that book? Nope, it's not Revelation. It's close. It's the book of the apocalypse. Um, that's that's uh, one of the um, subtitles of it. But the full title is The Revelation of Jesus Christ. One of the mistakes we make is revelations. It's only one revelation. It's the revelation of Jesus Christ. And the book of the apocalypse is the subtitle for it. Why? Because the other way of saying it is the apocalypse of Jesus Christ. They mean the same thing. The apocalypse of Jesus Christ. The revelation of Jesus Christ. So when we're saying apocalyptic literature, remember that. That'll be a way that you remember the word. The revelation of Jesus Christ. This is about the revealing of Jesus Christ. It's about the apocalypse of Jesus Christ. So we're reading apocalyptic literature. God's revealing something to us through this type of literature. And so what the, the, the book of Revelation was the first book actually self-designated as an apocalypse. And later after the fact, as scholars began to, to study this type of literature, they realized, oh, this is all, there's all kinds of literature like this. And they used that term from that book to talk about that's the same kind of literature. It's the same kind. And that's how we, that's how we came up with it. So there's four areas of apocalyptic literature as we're studying through it. There's four things we want to look for. So we're going to be reading tonight and going through this. Um, we want to look at its characteristics, its purposes, some tips on how to read it. Um, and overview of approaches. Um, so uh, does anybody feel like they have the fire hydrants on yet? You know, I'm turning the fire hydrant. It's just going like this. So, but this is a, it's really, it's really important because we're going to be reading a lot of this. Seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven. It's all going to be this kind of literature. So it's really helpful to get this overview to, to kind of help us as we begin to wrestle with it and look at it. 
Um, so let's look at the characteristics. What are the characteristics that are typical of this kind of literature? And see how many, as we read it, how many of these things you might find. So what we're going to look for as we go through the literature is clusters. of. You're not going to find every one of these characteristics. You look for clusters of them. Oh, there's some of that. Oh, there's some of that. Oh, there's some of that. Oh, it must be apocalyptic. You see? must be trying to reveal something. must be trying to disclose something. And um, so, one, it will be set in a, in a context that, of a larger narrative. Bigger story. There's a, bi- there's a, breath, there's a big breadth of a, breadth of a story going on here. It's going to have visions. It's going to have otherworldly journeys in it. Um, it's going to be supplemented by discourse, by dialogue, by a heavenly book of some kind. Somehow, there's going to be heavenly writing. Remember in Revelation, and there was the scroll with seven seals, this book of some kind. No one can open it. There's something in there. We want to know what it is. Nobody can open it. Who's going to open it? What does all that mean? We're going to find the same thing tonight as we look in Daniel 7. We're going to see a book. And, and um, there's going to be presence of guiding angels or inter- spiritual interpreters who are going to help us as we go through this there's a human recipient who's who's confused i don't get it i don't understand it you remember again when we studied revelation john's like what does this mean and i turned and there was one of the divine council or there was an angel or there was someone speaking to him who was kind of guiding him through it well daniel's going to have the same thing as we do this fascinating why because in the first half of the book daniel's the interpreter for everybody He's telling them what their dreams are and what they mean. Now he's having the dreams and he needs supernatural help to intend that. So we're going to have a human recipient who needs this. Um, recipient is most often a venerable or a pseudonymous person from the ancient past. Um, so there's usually, usually in this type of writing, whoever that recipient is, is somebody who's well honored. Um, uh, and, and it's going to involve final judgment or destruction of the wicked. Very often, this this language has this final, this finality to the destruction of the wicked in it. So, um, so that's the characteristics. We'll look, see if we can find some of that tonight in the next couple of weeks. Um, purposes. Why is this being written? Written. Written. That's a, I invented that word. That's an apocalyptic word. If you hear writing, everybody duck. Anyway. Um, why is this being written? It's for a people in crisis. We've already talked about that. They're in crisis. And so this is given for, for that. It's often to comfort. You've got persecution going on. There are people who are very often socially powerless. Um, there's a reassurance from culture shock. They're to reorient people who are going through trauma. They're to comfort in death. It's to assure the people of God that God is in control. It doesn't matter how out of control circumstances look. I mean, you know, that's comforting. How many, yeah, how many, how many times you look around and you go, it's out of control. And it's like, nope, it's not. It's not out of, read this. Read this. It's not out of control. It just looks like it. It gave comfort that God will ultimately prevail over evil, whatever we're accounting, no matter how it looks. Okay? So that's the purposes of it. That's what we're going through this for. And, and that's why I hope we take some of that away from this as we, as we go into this. All right. So why, wh- how to read this? These are some tips that Dr. Witter pointed out. These that come from a book called How to Read the Bible as Literature by Dr. Leland Riken. And so these are just some tips. One is read more of it. And I'm going to show you some examples of other types of apocalyptic literature that are out there that you can read. There's lots of it out there. The more you read, the more you kind of get familiar with, oh, I understand how they're writing that now. And then we don't make bad mistakes in interpretation because we're making assumptions because we don't understand what we're reading. 
So read more of it. Um, the other thing is expect the reversal of the ordinary. If something is ordinarily this way, expect it to be flipped on its head. A lamb that was slain is the conqueror of the world? How do you get that? How does a weak little, the wrath of the lamb? That one gets, gets me every time I read it. Read the book of the wrath of the, you know, when I think of animals that would demonstrate wrath, I usually don't think of lamb. It, lamb is not the first animal that comes to my mind when I think of wrath. Yet Revelation talks about beware of the wrath of the lamb. Like, see, it's a reversal of the natural order. That, that picture is meant to, to, to cause this cognitive dissonance in you, to wake you up, to shock you, to go, what's going on here? This is weird. This is different. I need to pay attention. Um, use your imagination. Picture a transcendent world outside of the world we see. There's a, how many know that there is a world that is actually more real than the world, the concrete we're standing on that is around us in which we're engaged, though we can't see it? Well, that's what this is here to help us to see. There is this transcendent world. It's not an actual picture of what's in that world. It's to show us that that world is there and how, in its difference, uh, we can understand it. We can connect to it. We can relate to it. It can encourage us. Um, it's a series of diverse self-contained units that tend to be kaleidoscopic in nature, not smooth in chronology. So when we're reading this type of literature, it's going to be kaleidoscopic. Anybody look at a kaleidoscope and you, you, know, you, you turn it and it has all these different pictures? That's what it's going to be. Look at that picture. And then it's going to flip again. And it's going to flip again. And it's not trying to give us a chronology through history. It's trying to say, here's one picture of it. And here's another. Okay, so oh, I'm going to give big points for this one. This is, this is worth 152 points. How many times does the book of Revelation retell the same story? Seven. She got it right here. She, your mom beat you, Marco. <laughs> Seven times. See, the book of Revelation is not chronological. Chronological. It doesn't start and get to the end. It tells the story and starts over. Tells the story and starts over. But how do you know that? You need to know the keys to the literature. You need to understand how to read it. Dr. John Lennox has a beautiful way of pointing that out so all right and so this is the point you get these kaleidoscopes that overlap and build um identify uh historical events or theological realities in salvation history represented by symbolism observe the whole scene without pressing the details for hidden meaning right instead of trying to get to you know what well what's the finger on the wing on the hand what's that finger i mean you know it's like, no, no 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 look at the broad thing and and let it impress upon you as you're looking at the whole picture like a painting Rather than get caught up in trying to find this hidden key deep down into this one little piece. Um, and then finally, uh, th- there's going to be an element of mystery. It's super, it, it carries with it a supernatural quality. It's the supernatural quality of the, of the Bible. So we need to approach it humbly. We're not going to understand it exactly. It's not meant to be understood in that way exactly. We're going to get, we're, it's, going to be, it's meant to lead us to, what, um, to truth. And we'll, we'll see how that is as we go through this. All right. So some examples um, uh, uh, that are awesome to go read and check out this type of literature. Uh, one is First Enoch. First Enoch has a lot of similarities to Daniel. 
Um, it's an overview of history. It's set in a schema of weeks. Um, highly recommend. It's not scripture, but it deals with scriptural themes. In fact, New Testament authors draw from First Enoch. And and uh, how many times I've heard people teach about certain sections of the New Testament and completely miss it because they don't understand the connection to First Enoch, which I'm super grateful for Dr. Michael Heiser. He's the one that really opened us up to that. Um, uh, another one is a collection of books that are that are called the you know Apocalypse of Abraham, Apocalypse of Adam, Apocalypse of Moses, Apocalypse of Elijah. So it's a series of books that that are drawing that use these biblical characters as their um, as their um, 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 main character in the stories. Um, there's a lot of sectarian material from Qumran, a lot of literature from the Dead Sea Scrolls in Qumran. So if you read it, if you, if you find these, the, these works that are out there, you can get them off the Internet, just read them and help to familiarize yourself with the genre. Um, so how do people approach this? There, there's four different ways that people approach this type of literature. Um, uh, scholar, different scholars would t- will approach it. One is called a preterist view. And the preterist view kind of comes to it and says, well, everything we're reading here happened in the past, and there's nothing prophetic about it. It's all in the past. It's already happened. Um, and you get a lot of critical scholars, and we'll talk a little bit about critical scholarship as we go into this, who have this view. You have the others who are the futurist view. And the futurist view, everything's about something in the future. Nothing is in the past. So you, you get these two extremes, these two bookends. You have a historicist, and, and what they're saying is, this is, well, this symbolism is going to help us trace some type of an ideological or theological development of an age or an era. In other words, we're going to go through this period of time of history, and we're going to see that this, this ideology or this theology develops through this period of time in history as we unfold these symbols and, and what these symbols are depicting, the events are depicting. And finally, you have the idealist, um, which is a, says this is a symbolic representation of the timeless conflict between good and evil. So everything we're going to look at is this timeless conflict, good and evil, and all these symbols are going to be representing this. Now, when, when I say these are the way people approach, it's... It's rare that anybody's purely one way or the other. There's typically a mixture of them. But it's good to know, the reason why I'm saying this, when you're out there and you're studying and you're reading different books about these things, and you'll read somebody comes to this conclusion, somebody else comes to this conclusion, and they go, well, they come to different conclusions. They probably came from a different approach, right? They're probably looking at it from different lenses. Um, My approach, when I go through this, is that this is inspired scripture, um, and this will come more out when we start getting in the interpretation of it. It's inspired scripture. These are real events that they depict. Um, we may not understand all the details of the events or how they unfold. And that they are both things that happened in the past. But at the time of Daniel, they were some of them were actually happening and going on. A lot of it was future. Um, and... Um, uh, and I think some of this also pictures things that are in the future, even from now. Um, and that's the other thing about the kaleidoscope view of history when you're looking at a text. And I think we're going to see this with Daniel. And I think Jesus points this out with Daniel, in fact. Um, uh, and that is this, is that we're going to see that there's some pieces, not, not tonight's text, but in, in text that's coming up in Daniel, that it gets fulfilled at one particular period in time. But then it gets fulfilled again later. And there's a potential that there's going to be a type of fulfillment of that even again later. And so it's like telescopic prophecy. Something that, you know, when you open a telescope, it gets bigger and bigger, and and each segment's a little longer. So you've opened the first, and it was fulfilled, and you open it again. And a lot of the way that the New Testament deals with 
prophecies of Jesus um, in its its typology, its symbolism, is this exact telescopic way that these things were fulfilled. And I think we'll see some of that um, as we go through Daniel a little bit. So that's some of my personal input on top that didn't come from anybody but here. So if you disagree, you're not disagree. You're only disagreeing with me, and you're good. All right. So um, let's read the read the book. Um, and for those, again, I said this earlier, um, we are not going to get through all of Daniel 7 tonight. Um, well, it's going to take us a couple of weeks to get through this teaching. I'll, we'll read the book tonight. We'll get through that, and I'll start the interpretation. But there's so much in Literally, there are entire books, journal articles, everything, just written on this one chapter. So we are not going to cover all that. We're going to hit some highlights and really try to wrestle and you know, arm wrestle around what we're reading here and how it's helpful for us in the immediate. And then I'm going to take another week, maybe two, to get into some, some, some of the weeds, some of the details that are just so cool that I just, as a Bible nerd, can't leave alone. And we'll, we'll dive into those. And I just think they'll really help us to get a better understanding of Scripture as a whole. So we're going to do, we're going to do both. All right. So Daniel 7, verse 1. Um, and you can read along up here with me. If you've got your Bibles, I recommend reading along in your Bible. It's helpful to look at different translations. All right. So in the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, notice um, Belshazzar is already dead two chapters ago, right? Dead and gone. So we're kind of going backwards in time here. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions of his head as he lay in bed. And then he wrote down the dream and told the sum of the matter. Daniel declared, I saw my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. And four beasts came out of the sea, different from one another. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. Then as I looked, its, its wings were plucked off, and it was, made, it, it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man, and the mind of a man was given to it. And behold, another beast, a second one, like a bear. It was raised up on one side, and it had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. And it was told, Arise, devour much flesh. And after this I looked, and behold, another, like a leopard, with four wings of a bird on its back. And the beast had four heads, and dominion was given to it. And after this I saw in the night visions, behold, a fourth beast terrifying, dreadful, exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth. It devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. And I considered the horns, and behold, there came up among them another horn, a little one, before which three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots. And behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth speaking great things, great think boastful, arrogant things. And as I looked, thrones were placed. And the Ancient of Days took his seat, and his clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head was like pure wool, and his throne was fiery flames, and its wheels were burning fire. 
And a stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousands served him. And ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. And the court sat in judgment and the books were opened. And I looked, and then because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking, and as I looked, the beast was killed, and its body was destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days, and he was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him, worship him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. As for me, Daniel, my spirit within me was anxious and The visions of my head, they alarmed me. I approached one of those who stood there and I asked him the truth concerning all this. So he told me and made known to me the interpretation of these things. These four great beasts are four kings who shall arise out of the earth. But the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, forever and ever. Well, then I desired to know the truth about the fourth beast, which was different from all the rest, exceedingly terrifying, with its teeth teeth of iron and and claws of bronze, and which devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. And about the ten horns that were on its head, and the other horn that came up, and before which three of them fell, and the horn that had eyes and a mouth that spoke great things and seemed greater than its companions. And as I looked, this horn made war with the saints. And it prevailed over them until the Ancient of Days came and judgment was given for the saints of the Most High. And the time came when the saints possessed the kingdom. Thus he said, as for the fourth beast, there shall be a fourth kingdom on earth, which shall be different from all the kingdoms, and it shall devour the whole earth, and trample it down, and break it to pieces. As for the ten horns, out of this kingdom ten kings shall arise, and another shall arise after them. And he shall be different from the former ones, and shall put down three kings." He shall speak words against the Most High, and shall wear out the saints of the Most High, and shall think to change the times and the law, and they shall be given into his hand for a time, times, and half a time. But the court shall sit in judgment, and his dominion shall be taken away, to be consumed and destroyed to the end. And the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. His kingdom kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions shall serve and obey Him. Here is the end of the matter. As for me, Daniel, my thoughts greatly alarmed me. My color changed. But I kept the matter in my heart.
And so that's the vision. Do you feel all the, the movement in it? Do you feel how it flowed? You know, so often we, we hear this and we read through it and we see all this strangeness, but picture having dreamt that. Picture having, you know, be experiencing this and trying to figure out how to write this down, how to explain this. I mean, he clearly had trouble trying to describe the fourth beast. It was different. He didn't know how to describe it. He said, it was, like, it was terrifying. It was, it was, it was like the, the most terrifying thing I've ever seen. And, and, uh, and so we're going to go through and just kind of look at this vision report a little bit. And, all right, so... First thing we noticed, I pointed this out as we were going through because I didn't want to get it, because I knew we'd get lost in some of the other details. But it's important. We move, we move back in time. He's telling this vision. He had this dream back when Belshazzar was in his first year in 553 BC. Now, Belshazzar was taken out, taken out at the end of chapter 5 in 539 BC. So this was a long time before, um, before Belshazzar was taken out, and as well as the time of Darius. We know he served in the time of Darius court, and then the time of Cyrus as well. So Daniel's writing us down. We've gone way back in time here and inserted this dream. So um, so the, the point was he saved this story for this point, to tell us this at this point. This is one of the things I'm trying to tell you. This The structure of the whole book is put together in a way to weave the whole book together. So instead of, because if he was telling the whole thing chronologically, he would have put that in between those other stories, right? He purposely put this here to be this hinge pin, this point, this focal point. So um, that's, you know, he put it out of chronology. And the fact that it's out of chronology should cause us to go, wait a minute. Different, different. What's going on here? Um, so in chapter 8, which we'll get to in a couple of weeks, um, it's the third year of Belshazzar. And then when we get to chapter 9, we're back to the time of Darius. So we're going to be jumping around. These visions aren't in the chronology of the story of the life in. They're put together in this order for a different purpose and reason. All right. Um, uh so the second half of the book, um, the, the, the second half of Daniel, it's fascinating, fits within the first half. So we read chapters uh, 7 through 11 through 12. These chapters fit within the first half. They fit in there um, in, in, in his experiencing them. Though the subject matter we're going to see deals with times after that period of time. So there's reasons for this. And so we're glimpsing back in time. Now, it's interesting to note that this vision occurs when? During the reign of who? When did you get this dream? It's the reign of who? Belshazzar, right? What do we know about Belshazzar? What kind of king was he? He was prideful. He was a presumptuous, blasphemous king who shook his fist at the God of heaven. Interesting. That's when he has this vision about this beast who is a presumptuous, arrogant king shaking his fist at the God of heaven, yet even much greater. You know, Belshazzar's an amateur compared to this. So right away we're getting this correspondence. He's having this vision during the reign of one who's reigning like unto this beast. Um, and so what's that tell us? What happened to Belshazzar? He was judged. What's going to happen to the beast? He's going to be judged. The fact that Belshazzar was judged means we can know this beast is going to be judged. 
just making these connections, these correspondences. Um, so this first vision, let's let's jump into this. So again, we're going to hit some of the symbolism. We're not going to hit all of it. Um, what time we got? We're doing pretty good. We're going to hit some of the symbolism. We're not going to get all of it. Um, I'm going to give us enough to kind of get us on an overview of what we just read. Um, the first thing we see is this great sea. What is this great sea? Well, some want to say it's the Mediterranean Sea. And uh, I'm going to agree with all the scholars who say they're wrong. But I don't have an opinion. Anyway, um, it's, it's, this, it's, um, it's a mythological sea of chaos. Um, now, Oh, I just so want to do this. I'm going to take just a slight little bunny path. Um, this is, this, we've got to have some fun, right? This is literally tying us to creation. Um, if you want to understand the first chapter of Genesis, you need to know about this sea of chaos. In the ancient world, we're going to find out that a lot of this story that we're looking at here in Daniel 7 is a, is, is, is a polemic response to some of the characters we meet in a story called uh, the Enuma Elish. What is the Enuma Elish? It's the Babylonian creation story. Where are they? They're in Babylon. And so there are these symbols in this story. If you understood the Babylonian creation story or the Egyptian creation story or the Ugaritic creation story or the Canaanite, if you understood these creation stories and you went back to Genesis chapter 1, what you would realize is that a lot of what's going on in those other stories is represented in Genesis chapter 1, except instead of all their gods doing the things, it's the God of heaven doing it, number one. Number two, it's not all this supernatural stuff involving all their gods at war. It's God speaking, and it's happening. And and number three, what's going on, it's the God who takes chaos, who takes emptiness, who takes what is void, and creates something from nothing, who takes the abyss. Now, the abyss is key. Because that's what we see what's going on here. In the very first chapter, the very first verse of Genesis, um, it talks about the abyss. Um, I'm going to look up the verse for you here and read it to you. And you're going, where does it say the abyss in the first chapter of Genesis? Well, it's because we read it in English that we miss it. Um, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. Anybody know that verse? Darkness over the face of the deep? Guess what the word deep means? Is Abyss. It's bottomless. It's a bottomless sea. And in the ancient world, that was where chaos was. This, there's the struggle between chaos and order. And so he's seeing this abyss. He's seeing this sea of creation. Okay, he's seeing this picture, um, and um, uh, and it's 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 stirred up, it's churned up, and you have the four winds of heaven, and those winds are coming from every direction. When it talks about the four winds, um, that's like the four points of the compass, right? There are the four winds. Um, I'm actually getting ahead of myself, so uh, let me just keep going through this. Um, the winds are, are, are coming from every direction. The seas are swirling, and there's this huge tumult going on. And then he sees these four otherworldly beasts coming out of it. They're arising out of these churning, disturbing waters. You can picture the massive, stormy waters that are going on, and, and these four beasts, one after the other. And this imagery, what's interesting about the imagery he's seeing is they're unique. These, the, the animals are used in imagery all the time, right? Lion, bear, leopard. You see that in all kinds of ancient imagery. But the way they're put together 
is unique. You don't find it anywhere else in ancient. We have not so far found it in ancient Near Eastern uh, studies. These the way these images. So they're unique in Daniel how they're being uh, particularly um, um, uh, 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 um, expressed. So they're drawing on familiar animal I- imagery. Um, both out of the Bible and from Mesopotamia, but but they're different. They're they're winged beasts. They're multi-headed creatures. They're deformed animals. Um, in in um, in Babylonian literature, uh, um, you got deformed animals in in Babylonian birth literature. In the Enuma Elish, you have beasts that are coming out of the sea, which I was just talking about earlier. Um, Marduk defeats uh, the goddess Tiamat. Um, and Tiamat is literally the, pers- the personification of that chaotic sea. And so when Marduk defeats uh, Tiamat, and, uh, and there's a whole army of sea monsters that are on Tiamat's side, and Marduk beats all of them, and because he beats all of them, he has the right to be the king. Well, now notice, this is, there's this great conflict in Babylonian history about how Marduk becomes the high head god. Okay? Now, when Daniel has the vision... It's effortless for Yahweh. What conflict? See the contrast? All these things, all this tumult where all this greatness looks like it's going on, all of that pride that comes along, God comes along, sits down, it's destroyed. There's no great war. Not for God. It's not a big struggle for God. For Marduk, it was a massive battle. He might win, he might not win. Two great powers of near equal strength. Which one's going to win? When, when, when the Ancient of Days sits down, he sits down, it's over with. It's done. He's allowed it to happen for a purpose, for a reason. But never at one time was he out of control. Never was there a question. So the beasts. Um, you get the first three. Um, and again, these are all variations of well-known animals. Lion, bear, and leopard. You know, very well-known animals. But they're variations of them. But when you get to that fourth beast, it's different. He, you know, again, Daniel's not sure how to describe this beast. He's trying to figure out how to even tell you what he's what he's looking at. Um, so, what do lions symbolize? They symbolize strength. Um, and so, uh, the the wings um, are a very familiar motif in, in Babylon. Those wings that an eagle symbolizes speed. So, it's a strong, fast, powerful beast. Um, but yet, the wings are taken off. And what's it do? It stands up. And what's it given? The mind of a man. Where did we already see this in Daniel? 30 points. That's right. Nebuchadnezzar. Remember? When he had, he was given the mind of a beast and ate uh, grass for seven periods of time, probably seven years. And then when he came to his senses, he stood up on his feet and given the mind of a man. Interesting. So something happens to this first beast. That's corresponding. It's trying to give us a reference point to understand who this beast is. It's trying to give us a connection point to something we already know, something that's already been there. Um, so we get the bear. The next is a bear. And bears are often paired with lions in the Bible. You know, so I mean, like in nursery rhymes too, right? Lions and tigers and bears. Oh my! I heard that. You know, um, so they're often paired with them. Um, but this one um, is a is um, uh, is mutant. There's something about it. It's, it's I'm sorry. It's the only animal that's not mutant. In other words, it doesn't have wings or something like that. But there's something about it. It's lopsided. 
One side is bigger than the other. Why? Why is it telling us one side of the bear is bigger than the other? And it has a voracious appetite. It's literally crushing everything in front of it. Um, now, the leopard, leopards are known for what? For their speed. They're, 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 they're um, fast animals. They're very, they're very uh, sneaky animals. And so this one has even more speed. Why? It has four wings. But it also has four heads. And four is very often associated with totality. The four winds of heaven, all the four corners of the earth. That four is like all, all of all of heaven, all of the earth. When we say the four corners, we mean the entire earth, totality. So we see four wings, we see four heads. Um, and again, we'll get an interpretation a little bit in a little while. Finally, we get the fourth beast. And there's a whole lot more text about this beast. It's not, it's not named. It's not told us what, what kind it is. It doesn't compare to anything. There's mystery to it. Um, it's, it's the most otherworldly, the most unnatural uh, of all of them. It's got iron teeth. It's got ten horns. It's, it's crushing. It's devouring. It's trampling. It, it, he's trying to give, he's trying to strike, you should, you should be thinking a fearful picture. This is a fearful picture, this beast. It's a new kind of terror, according to uh, the scholar Sao. So that, that'll, there's this 11th horn that comes up, and this 11th horn overpowers three others. So it's, uh, and, and what's different about this horn is that this one has eyes and a mouth. It's got these human attributes. What's telling us it's likely not, simp- not a kingdom, but a person. It's given a, person's, this, a person personality. It's given personal attributes, and, it, and it's extremely boastful. It's extremely arrogant. Um, and so then we shift. The whole scene shifts. Then it changes, um, and we're, we're in a throne room. Now, notice the first thing it says there's multiple thrones. Now, go back and reference the study we did on um, uh, chapter 4, the very first study. Remember, we did uh, the study on the watchers. Who can remember what is one of the names for the watchers, or some of the names for the watchers? The Divine Council, that's right, because you can read, you get seven points. Um, uh, so, no, 12, because in Revelation there's 12 thrones, so we'll go 12 points, yeah. Um, so, Divine Council, okay? And so we have these thrones that are ruling with God, okay, that, that, that bring up this imagery of this Divine Council. Well, where else did we see, I just told you, where else did we see the Divine Council be brought up in the book of Daniel. Chapter 4. That's right. Four more points. Um, yeah, chapter 4. When Nebuchadnezzar was had his dream, and he had his dream, and the watcher appears to him, I think great irony, right? He's asleep, and one who is awake appears to him. Because this is what watcher means. He falls asleep, and one who is awake appears to him. To tell him how asleep he really is, and what he's not seeing. Trying to wake him up. Um, and, and so we see reference to these beings again here in these thrones that sitting here, the divine council and that divine council is a, is a well-known concept in ancient near Eastern literature. Um, it's, it's all throughout scripture. They're also called sons of God, um, uh, sons of God, watchers, thrones, there's multiple names for them, uh, in the text. So, but then there's all of a sudden we're focused on one specific throne. 
and the Ancient of Days is seated. Now, this is a unique title for God in, in all the Bible. Now, there's some similar t- titles for God in First Enoch, but nowhere else calls him the Ancient of Days. But it's an idiom, right? It's expressing, it's a way of talking about his eternality. He's the Ancient of Days. He's eternal. There is no beginning to him. And what's it doing? By calling him that, what's it doing? These kingdoms that are arising are all temporary. But there's one who's coming that isn't. He's permanent. And the, the I'm going to borrow a, you know, a modern political word, the gravitas of the moment here, right? There's this, there's this weight all of a sudden, this kavod, this glory, this heaviness, all of a sudden that comes front and center as the Ancient of Days takes. It's like, okay, he's taking us. It's all over with now. And this is what's going on in the scene. Um, and, and, and what do we see with it? His throne's on fire. And then his throne is literally flaming. There's a river of fire coming from it. The wheels on either side of it are fiery wheels. Now those wheels should take us immediately to Ezekiel. By the way, when did Ezekiel live compared to Daniel? Anybody know? Ooh, this is an extra point. This is worth 61 points. Take a wild guess. When did he live compared to Daniel? Uh, actually, same time. The one thing, <laughs> he's a contemporary of Daniel. He was a contemporary. Daniel was carried off in the, probably carried off in the 605 exile out of Judah. Ezekiel was probably carried off in the 597 exile, uh, up to, um, the, uh, the Kabar River, up in that region there. And so he's a contemporary. So he's writing about the same time Daniel is. So Daniel likely had access to some of these things that Ezekiel had written. But anyway, we see what? We see the throne of God, the chariot of God with the, with the, the, these, these keruv, these keruvim, we call them cherubs, the cherubim. Um, uh, they're not, you know, little tiny angels with wing, you know, hearts and all that. These are fearsome throne guardians. These are fearsome throne guardians. And so that's, that's making this connection. And so God's presence is commonly associated with fire all throughout the scripture. Remember when they came to Mount Sinai and he's telling everybody, we're studying the Ten Commandments right now. When they come to Mount Sinai, don't anybody come anywhere near. And the thunder and the and the uh, lightning and all this appealed and there's fire going on. How about the burning bush? Take your shoes off, Moses. You're on holy ground. How about the pillar of fire that they followed around everywhere? How about Hebrews saying, our God is a consuming fire? Yes? Oh, yeah, they definitely both had heavenly visions, for sure. They both had heavenly visions. Go to Ezekiel. That's what I'm pointing out. The point is, if you go to Ezekiel 1, and you'll see that imagery two or three other times, I think 14 and uh, uh, one other place, and then you'll see it again. John borrows from that imagery as he's trying to describe what he saw in the book of Revelation. Oh, for sure. For sure. There's there's actually evidence in Ezekiel that they knew each other, knew of each other. So that's yeah, bring it up in the Q and A, and I don't want to get too derailed from that because I got a lot. Yeah, but bring it up in the Q and A. It's a good question. All right. So God's judgment is also associated with fire. Anybody heard of Gehenna? Gehenna is a type and picture of eternal burning fire. 
the lake of fire itself we see in the book of Revelation. There's lots in um, in Second Temple literature as well that refers to this. And so we get this vision. We get God's awesome presence. We have his judgment. We have the court. It's a courtroom scene. The court sits. And what do we see again? We see what? Books. They're opened up. Now, what's interesting, throughout the um, Bible, you'll see there's books all over the Bible. And the Bible is a book, but I'm saying the, book, the Bible talks about heavenly books in multiple places. Multiple places. Sometimes it refers to them as scrolls, sometimes as books, but it's, it's in multiple places throughout. Um, uh, so there's several kinds of books. And these, these are clearly the basis for judgment. How do we know? As soon as these books are opened, we switch back to earth. He opens up the books. Bam! We switch back to earth. And what do we see? That little boasting horn. That fourth beast. They're killed. They're tossed into the fire and they're burned. The books are open. It's time. It's over. Judgment. This arrogant, boastful, blasphemous, terrifying beast is destroyed. Um, when God opens the book, there's no closing it. Um, uh, in the, um, the, the, it's interesting. In the Old Testament... The burning of corpses is for the most heinous of crimes. The most heinous of crimes. And so then, after that judgment takes place, bam, we're moved right back to the throne room. We get judgment, earth scene, bam, we're right back in the throne room. It switches back. And what do we see? We see one like a son of man, and he's carried on the clouds. He comes carried on that imagery of the clouds. We'll get into it next week. I won't have time tonight. But he's carried on the clouds and brought... Uh, to the Ancient of Days. And what happens with him? He is given glory. He's given authority. He's given sovereign power. All people, all nations, all languages. Now, in our books, I read it tonight. It showed the word serve. That word serve in Aramaic is the Aramaic version of a Hebrew word. That word used in Hebrew, everywhere it's used in the Old Testament, always means worship and refers to Yahweh only. Refers to Yahweh only. So here's one appearing, one like the Son of Man, who is receiving worship like the Ancient of Days. And he has an eternal, indestructible kingdom. He clearly contrasts his kingdom with the kingdom of the beasts. We saw all these other kingdoms, and now we see this kingdom. It clearly references Jesus. Um, but, but we want to ask ourselves some questions. and we won't, This is some of the places we'll go next week. Um, we want to think, because when the original readers were reading it, they didn't know about Jesus yet. So who would they thought this Son of Man was? What's going on in this picture? And we're going to see some fascinating stuff when we look at this next week. That's a commercial. So I got a, I got a great article from Heiser. A fantastic article I'm borrowing from Heiser. I'm so using it. <laughs> we're going to have some fun with what we see in this particular scene here. Um, and, but we're going to ask ourselves some questions. What is the Son of Man? I mean, because um, everywhere else in the Bible, Son of Man means human being. Um, so why use human being in the vision here? Why use one like a human being here? Um, why is he coming on the clouds? We're going to ask that. Why the clouds? What do the clouds have to do with anything? Um, does this imagery occur other places in the ancient Near East? Yeah, see, Heiser talks about all this. Um, uh, does the Old Testament have precedence for this imagery? 
Where else might we see this imagery in the in the Old Testament, in the Hebrew Scriptures? Um, does this does this occur in Second Temple literature or Christian literature? How how does Jesus use this imagery, and why does he use it that way? Why does the Son of Man receive a kingdom here in verse fourteen, and yet when we get down to verse twenty seven, he keeps saying the kings receive it. I mean the the saints receive it, the saints receive it, the saints receive it in the interpretation. Why does he say that? What's going on there? So um, again. All that saved for later. That's not for tonight. That's commercial. That was like we stopped, gave you a commercial. Now we're moving on. All right. <clears throat> um, hopefully that wets your whistle. So we, we move in the text now to the, this heavenly being. Um, you know, Daniel's confused. He's troubled. He's like, what in the world is all this I just saw? Um, and I, you get the clear contrast because he's the man who understands all of it. It's like what, what are, we're supposed to be going, how can the guy who literally sees and understands everything be the guy who doesn't see and understand? That should tell us that, that you know, the, the, the complexity of what's going on in this moment. And, um, and, and so it's following this vision pattern. There's a pattern to it. And what happens in vision patterns, and this is important, we're going to see certain things with a lot of detail that that's clearly this. And then it kind of gets, you know, a little bit back like a mirror, a dim mirror. And we're not really fully getting the whole thing. Now, let me give you one of the biggest places that um, this will make sense to you. How many believe that it was prophesied before Jesus came that he was going to come? And so many of the things that he was going to do. How many believe that it was prophesied? Okay. Yet, when he came, those who have been reading it and studying it for years didn't see it and understand it. Why? Because there was a a dimness to it until it happened and it became evident and revealed. Okay. Um, now, Paul tells us there's a very specific reason for it. He tells us this is in the book of Corinthians. He says, if the rulers of this world had known, I'm paraphrasing here, what was going to happen when they crucified the Lord of glory, they wouldn't have crucified him. If the, if the, if the, if the, 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 the devil and all of the spiritual forces and powers of this world had known they were going to lose their power by crucifying Jesus and him resurrecting, they wouldn't have moved on mankind to crucify him. That's what Paul's telling us. So therefore, the message was clearly given in Scripture, but not so clear that they could see it until it happened. And so many of things in prophecy are given this way, where we're given things where you can clearly know, and then there's also this dimness to it that becomes obvious. It's like when you hear a riddle, and you're going to bang your head all day long, and you do not get the riddle until finally somebody gives you the key, and then you can't unsee it. Then it's like, oh, how can I miss that? Of course. And so this is the gospel writers do this over and over. All right. So he's troubled. He's seeing these things. Um, little is said of the first uh, three beasts. There, there are three kingdoms. You know, it doesn't say a whole lot about them. And they focus a lot on this fourth beast. Um, and, and there's a lot of interpretation. This little horn, here's the big thing. And these are some added things, because this didn't come up in the first part. He's, he's fighting against the saints. He's defeating the saints. He's making war on the saints. This is more vision given to him during the interpretation, right? It didn't say all that in a dream. So it's like, oh, my goodness, so who are the saints? Kind of be important to know that, huh? Um, so who are these four kingdoms? Um, uh, let's see, we're doing pretty good. I'm winding down here. So there's two main approaches. I talked about this when we, when we hit, um, 
uh, Daniel 2, when we were going over the dream, the Nebuchadnezzar, the great colossal man, this, these correspond to that. So we need to look at those together. Now, there's two main approaches. There's the Roman view approach, and then there's the Greek view approach. Now, the Greek view approach has an A and a B. Most evangelical scholars, overwhelming majority of them, fall in the Roman view. Um, the, the first Greek option, most critical scholars fall in the Greek option view. The Greek option number two, you'll find a lot of critical scholars in Greek option number two, and you'll find some evangelical scholars. Dr. Witter falls in that one. She's, in, she's of the camp of the second Greek too. I'm still a Roman view guy. I think the Roman view is probably the more correct one. All of them have problems. Not, none of them are perfect. Um, there's, there's pieces of it that, that, you know, that are kind of left out and don't fit nice and neatly. Uh, in any of the approach. But we're going to look at each of these approaches. Um, this is the Roman view. This is the traditional evangelical view that you'll find in most evangelical commentaries. It goes um, pretty much just like this. So the lion is who? The lion is Babylon, right? It's the head of gold from the great colossal man, right? You have the head of gold, great colossal man, Babylon. We looked at that. The bear is the Medo-Persia Empire. Now, why is it lopsided? Because the Persian Empire was greater than the Medo Empire. But it was the two coming together that formed this powerful empire that devoured everything. And look how they just, just absolutely crushed Babylon in a day. Right? And so, the, why is it, it's this combination. There's two, two powers together, but one side's bigger than the other. And so these three ribs that were in its mouth, these are three major conquests. Uh, Lydia, Babylon, and Egypt. Um, uh, the Medo-Persians conquering Lydia, conquering Babylon, conquering Egypt. So then we move to the leopard. Um, the leopard was Greece. And, I mean, it's got four wings. It, one of the things Alexander the Great was known for was how fast he conquers the world. I mean, he moved four wings, flying through the world conquering. But then how fast he dies. And when he dies... He has four generals who take over, and his empire is divided up into his four generals. So these four wings, these four heads, talk about the speed of Alexander conquering the world. Talk about his kingdom being divided up into four. And as we get into to, um, uh, Roman, I mean Daniel eight, we're going to talk more about Persia and and Greece. These two empires are going to come up a lot more in the prophecies and the visions there. So then we get to this fourth beast. Who is this fourth beast? And so the obvious one be after that, this is Rome. Iron, the iron teeth, the ten horns. Now, there are three views of the ten horns. So what are these ten horns? Some say, well, this is entirely fulfilled. All this happened um, prior to uh, the temple falling in 70. So these would be the kings prior to the time of the temple falling in 70 AD when Jesus establishes his kingdom on earth, and the kingdom of God has been established. So um, that's some view will take that. Some take a future fulfillment in which they believe that the that somehow the um, there is a there is an extension of the old Roman Empire, um, and uh, some will even take it spiritually, like there's a spiritual extension of the old Roman Empire. Um, and so they're looking at a future fulfillment, you know, of ten leaders, and then finally there's the Another future fulfillment, which says that somehow there will be a conglomeration, a type of Roman Empire, Roman Empire-esque that, uh, empire that is established at some point that from which this 11th horn comes out. 
Um, and so there's there's different views on on how we get to that fourth beast. All right. So the the, the critical scholarship, the critical scholars will say this. Every, you know, they agree that the lion is Babylon. They um, they say the bear is media prior to it being the Medo-Persian Empire, and that those three ribs uh, were actually Darius the Mede, and they and then they say that that this is a historical inaccuracy Daniel got wrong, and the Bible's just wrong here. This is again coming from critical scholars who don't hold to the inerrancy of Scripture, um, and so then they go that leopard was Persia. Um, and it had four wings and heads. That's going to be the four Persian kings, the first four Persian kings, or it could be the four directions in which the Persian Empire traveled. And then finally you get to the fourth beast, which is Greece. Why? Because you have these Seleucid kings um, that lead you to this one particular king, Antiochus Epiphanes. Now, he is important in Daniel. He is extremely important in, in the history of Israel. He is a type of Antichrist. He is uh, a, a, the first fulfillment of the abomination of desolation in the temple. Okay, that we'll see later in Daniel. He is a type of that fulfillment. And so they want to point him to this. Now remember, critical scholars believe Daniel was written during this period of time. They don't believe in future prophecy. And Daniel gets so accurate with what's going on with these kingdoms that they're saying, well, this already had to happen. And Daniel's just writing about something that already happened because they don't believe he can be prophetic. So obviously I have a lot of problems with this view personally myself. I don't hold to this one at all but i'm pointing these things out because you're going to hear them if you're studying scripture you're reading books you're going to hear them and you go why'd they say that why am i reading this where'd that come from so we don't shy away from anything here all right and finally this other greek view now this holds some it's similar to the last one but but has some very significant differences the lion rather than being babylon is specifically nebuchadnezzar now, I mean, that, that holds some legitimacy, right? Because that image did what Nebuchadnezzar did. And in Daniel 2, Nebuchadnezzar was the head of gold. Um, and so that view says, no, this is specifically Nebuchadnezzar. And his kingdom was the continuation, the Neo-Babylonian kingdom was the continuation of the Assyrian kingdom. And the, so therefore, the bear was the media empire prior to Persia. Um, it was contemporaneous with Nebuchadnezzar's successors. After Nebuchadnezzar, after his great reign, Media came up, um, and the three ribs would be the three great conquests of the Medians. Um, and you can find those three great conquests in the prophet Jeremiah, Jeremiah 51. And so then the next one would obviously be Persia. The leopard would be Persia. Again, we get the first four Persian kings, with the fourth beast being Greece. And the ten horns are not, so the reason why the ten horns, the critical scholarship can't be right, is um, uh, Antiochus Epiphanes was the ninth king. So there weren't ten before him. So again, that would be another area, era with um, Greek option number one. But Greek option number two, these would be the ten sovereign states that grew out of Greece, um, grew out of ancient Greece's empire in the second century. So, um, that's, uh, that's, there are uh, some scholars who hold that view. Now, here's the point. They all have problems. None of them are perfect. Um, we're not going to nail it down with certainty. I mean, you can be certain in your own mind, but you're not, it's not going to be certain where everyone's going to agree. Now, why is that not important? Because what we really learn about them is they're all temporary. And that's the point. The point is, no matter how terrifying, 
no matter if they're picturing the past or the future, they're all temporary. It's the fifth kingdom. It's the kingdom of God. That's the one that's indestructible. That's the only one that endures forever. That's the point he's trying to drive home here. (coughs) Excuse me. So the main point, God is sovereign beyond human history. The kingdom of God will break in. His kingdom will change human history, period. That's the main point. And that's where we're going to stop for tonight. Um, We're going to go back and visit some more of those details that we didn't touch. And um, we're going to go into uh, the the conclusion and the purpose of Daniel. Hopefully we'll get to all that next week. All right. Let me close in prayer. Um, Wait till Sally turns us off. And then if we have a, a question or two, we'll take it. Father, we bless you. We thank you that we do serve an eternal king. We have entered an eternal kingdom one that cannot and will not be destroyed, but is, will endure forever. And you have called us to be a part of that and to, to be a part of, of uh, bringing that kingdom here on earth. Help us to understand that you have passed the seed unto us to destroy the works of the devil, as you say in Romans 16. To allow your spirit to work through us. How? By plundering his gates. How? By, bring, by, uh, by uh, completing the great commission. Making disciples. Lord, I pray that we would we see the connection to these things. We relate to this and open our eyes. Move by your spirit. We thank you for your word. Encourage us. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, Sally, let me know when we're off.